you got a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning as we wrap up this series, Teach Us to Pray. Uh, we'll read verses 9 to 13 together, but we're going to dive into really verse 13 this morning as the text from which this sermon is going to come. We'll pick up in verse 9 and read down through verse 13 as Jesus teaches us to pray, Our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Um, I don't know if you've ever looked up the word preserve in a dictionary, but it's got a couple of different ways and nuances in which that word, way that word is used. Um, those of you who enjoy Doors, you're familiar with wildlife preserves, right? That's where the government manages tracts of land with very strict regulations to keep all your rednecks with guns from killing all the animals that live there. Um, that's a wildlife preserve or a wildlife refuge. Um, another way the word preserve is used is to describe jams and jellies, right? You got all these good, yummy, sugary things you can spread on toast and biscuits and bread, right? In the world of preserves, when it comes to these kinds of preserves, you got mixtures of fruit that are canned or jarred with sugar and they're sealed up to last, to be preserved from outside influences and decay and breakdown. You got jellies that are part of the preserve family. They're the most consistent and perhaps um, refined of the bunch. You've got compotes, which are the other end of the extreme, which are really chunky and got all kinds of, right, the pieces of the fruit still left in there. You've got fruit butters. You've got marmalades, mm, like a bacon marmalade. You ever had bacon? Man, I'm getting hungry. I don't know about you. You've got chutneys. You've got fruit paste. You've got all these types of preserves, but they're canned fruits that are sealed with sugar in kind of a, a gelatinized type form and to keep them from decay so that they can be used for a good while, right? So they're pre preserved from decay from outside influences. And whenever you think of this idea of preservation in the text this morning, Jesus, as he ends the Lord's Prayer in verse 13, he teaches us to pray for God's preservation in our lives. Whenever he teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And so this morning, as we look at this prayer of preservation, I want you to know that we need it in both those ways that word is used in the English, English language, because we have an enemy, someone who is hunting us. Do you know that, church? You have an enemy, someone who is on the prowl. The Bible says that he's, we have an adversary who roars like a lion, seeking someone to devour. And we need God's faithful preservation in the midst of his attacks. But we also live in a world that has been marred and influenced by sin. And within a culture that is yielded to God's kingdom, in a culture that is seeking to establish its own rule and reign, right, has its own vision for life. And we also need God's preservation, not only from the enemy's attacks, but also from the, out, from the from influences that would seek to decay and destroy our faith. So we need God's preservation in both of those ways. Right? But we also need God's preservation as we get into the sermon this morning, into this particular text, for this reason. I want you to consider something with me. When you ask the question, why do we need God to preserve us? Why does Jesus teach us to pray this way on a daily basis? To pattern our prayers after this prayer. 
for preservation. And one of the reasons is this, is because what our Father uses to test, our enemy uses to tempt. What our Father uses to test, our enemy uses to tempt. See, one thing that the Bible is clear on is that while God does test us, He does not tempt us. He does not tempt us. The word temptation in the first line of this particular, of the verse, verse 13, is a word that could also be translated test or trial. Right? The Greek word underneath that English word temptation, that's what it means. Right? Whenever you think of that word, it shows up elsewhere in the Bible. It shows up in James chapter 1. It shows up in 1 Peter chapter 4 as Peter describes trials that we might have experienced of various kinds. Or James, when he says, consider it pure joy of various kinds. However, in verse 13 of James chapter 1, we're told on the very heels of those trials that we're to consider joy, we're told that whenever we experience temptation in the midst of trials, that God is not the source of that temptation. That it does not come from Him. In James chapter 1, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. And so whenever we face temptation in the midst of a trial that God intends for our testing, but tempting arises out of it, James says the problem lies either in your enemy and adversary or it lies in your own flesh. And your own desire to be your own God, to rule and run your own life. And so none of us, when we're tempted, can look at God and say, God, if you just wouldn't have allowed that trial in my life, if you wouldn't have allowed that test my life, if you wouldn't have put me through, if you would not have put me in a, I would have never rebelled against you the way that I did. That's what James is saying there. You cannot look at God and put the onus for your sin upon Him, but rather it lies squarely upon your own shoulders, James says. That's an important distinction because oftentimes in the midst of our trials, we can confuse God's test with temptations because our hearts, I don't know about yours, but mine will do this, it will use difficult circumstances to make excuses for our sinful behavior. Right? It's just a release, right? I I just need a, a pressure release valve in my life and where I find that is running away from God rather than running to Him in the midst of my trials and in the midst of my tests. If you think about it this way, a test is a trying circumstance or a difficult situation that is oftentimes orchestrated by God in our lives. But a temptation, on the other hand, is an invitation to sin. It's an encouragement to engage in something that is contrary to God's commands. It's contrary to God's law. It's contrary to God's rule in our lives. And God will certainly test us, but He never tempts us. That temptation arises from within or it comes from without, but He is not the source. You with me so far? All right. And so the question might arise in our minds, if God indeed knows all things, right? We affirm that God knows all things. When He tests us or He allows trials in our lives to test us, what is He hoping to learn? Right? If God already knows how we're going to respond, God already knows what the results are going to be, what is He hoping to get out of that? And here, let me address that this morning. And trials that we experience from God in our lives oftentimes are more for our knowledge than they are for His. They're more for our knowledge than they are for His. I don't know, we, we often think of tests. When we hear the word tests, we think of the, the, the classroom environment, okay? Now, it's been a little while in the classroom, uh, pray. Uh, but going through seminary, uh, I'll, I'll 
several professors who said, you know what, you cannot master the content that we're trying to teach you. If you, he said, I know you, because I was once in your shoes. You're going to wait until the very end, until the, 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 the final test or the final paper, and you're going to kind of, you're just going to slough off all the way through these 15 weeks, and then the 16th and cram it all in there and master the material. He said, you can't do that. You'll never master the material. He said, so instead of you test at the end, I'm going to give you multiple major pop quizzes. I'm not going to announce when they're going to be, right? That means you've got to show up to class and you have to be prepared when you come to class. Because he wanted to test us to see if we were retaining the knowledge, if we were retaining the information. But that is not necessarily how God tests us. Because God already knows our hearts. God already knows our minds. He knows what we're going to do before we do it. He knows all of those things. God brings tests and trials into our lives. Oftentimes, it's not to give Him some insight or information into what's already in here, but it's to open our eyes to see what's in our hearts. It's to open our eyes to see where our minds go, where our hearts go, what we gravitate toward, what we cling to in the midst of trying seasons and circumstances. Right? And so God allows those tests, He brings those tests, He brings those trials, not so He can learn something about us, but so we can learn something about ourselves and about Him in the midst of it. Our true source of hope, our true source of joy, our true source of satisfaction. That's what God is doing in the midst of those things as He tests us. But that last line of the, uh, verse 13 in that last line, there's another word that's interesting there. It says, um, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That last word in the second line uh, is translated in most of our modern translations as evil. However, most modern commentators, when they look at that word, along with those from uh, the, the commentators from earlier periods in church history, they would translate it not evil, but evil one. I could get real technical with you this morning and tell you why, but listen, it boils down to a suffix in the Greek language that's attached to the end of that word underneath our English word, which puts it more in abstract principle like evil, but more in an actual person as the evil one, as Satan, as our enemy, as our adversary. And so when Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, what he's teaching us to pray is this. God, would you preserve me in the midst of my trials from running from and rebelling against you and succumbing to the attacks and temptations of the adversary, the enemy who is seeking to overthrow me and consume me and devour me? God, would you keep me from that? God, would you keep me from trials and tests that you know are going to sink me? And God, in the midst of the trials and tests that you do bring, would you keep me from being sunk? In the midst of them. That's what Jesus is teaching us to pray here. Right? Last week we said that while our debt has been canceled, that our debts need to be confessed. Right? Those are two realities of the Christian faith. Our debt has been canceled because of the work of Christ, but our debits, they need to be confessed on a daily basis to, kind of, to keep our relationship with God on our end clear and free of hindrances. And the same, the, the, this, there's another paradox as well this morning. Is that while the war has been won, there are still battles to be waged. 
Christ has indeed won the war, but there are still battles to be waged in our own hearts and in our own souls and in our own minds as we encounter tests and trials of various kinds. See, while we have a defeated and humiliated enemy, the evil one has been defeated, he's been humiliated, and say that he's been exposed to open shame as he was defeated through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave. While he's defeated and humiliated, he's still seeking to lash out. He's still defiant and he's hungry, seeking to consume as many people as possible. And in our modern Western American mindset, we, we, we are prone to one of two distortions. When it, the first one is this. C.S. Lewis wrote about his, his book, The Screwtape Letters. I'll, I'll read him first and I'll tell you what these two distortions are. Listen to what he says. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall or the demons, or Satan, our enemy. He says one, on one hand, is to disbelieve in their existence, like to dismiss them altogether, that there are no spiritual forces acting on the material world and influencing outcomes and directions. The other hand, he says, is to believe, is, is, is to, to believe in this, feel an excessive and unhealthy, to be consumed by them, to be like exploring into them, to, to worship them, to give them adoration. He says, he's, and then says this, they themselves, the demons themselves, he says they are equally pleased by both errors and they will give an applause to both the materialist who says they don't exist and the magician who is infatuated with them. Because they would, they would prefer you to be one of the other but not have a recognition that they are there, vigilance to resist them. And so Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into trials that will see us. And whenever you do, keep us from being sunk by the attacks of the enemy. God, would you preserve us? Would you preserve our faith in the midst of our trials? And this is the exact thing in the life of Jesus himself. In fact, I can imagine that as Jesus teaches his disciples to pray this in Matthew 6, he's thinking back to Matthew 4. You know what happens in Matthew chapter 4? In Matthew chapter 4, we find these words, that Jesus is led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Now, what's going on here, right? What's going on in this particular text? Jesus is led by the Spirit in the wilderness to, to prove himself the true Son of God and to, for God to prepare him to be the perfect, sinless Son of God. That's what God is doing in the midst of his leading Jesus in the wilderness. The Spirit urging him out there into this barren and desolate place that God is wanting to prepare and the true Son of God. Right? In, in, in fact, that's one of the language that shows up in Matthew chapter 4. And again in Luke chapter 4 as well. As referred to as the Son of God. Now why? Because if you go back into the Old Testament, there were two other sons of God that are mentioned. The first is Adam himself. Adam was not divine like Jesus was, but he was the first creation of God, the first human creation of God. And so in God's son. And yet Adam fails the test, doesn't he? In the garden. He fails the test and takes of the fruit. And his eyes are opened along with his wife's. And they recognize their shame. Retreat and withdraw from God. He fails the test in the garden. A beautiful, lush place filled with all kinds of delights and beauty. And yet the one thing that God... He 
as for the nation of Israel referred to as the, a unique son of God. But Israel fails the test in the wilderness. As God leads them from the land of captivity into the land of promise. Israel fails that test in the wilderness. She grumbles against God. Rejects his rule. Seeks to worship the other nations through whom she's traveling to get to the promised land. She fails the test in the wilderness. And Jesus, as he's driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tested and tempted by the devil, he passes the test in the wilderness, in his fasting, in his hunger. He refuses to turn stones into bread. He refuses to put himself on display as a spectacle by throwing himself down the, uh, off the top of the, of the temple for all the world to see and God to angels to rescue him. Right? The, 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 the popularity and the, the, the notoriety of that. He also refuses the temptation of Satan to bow down and worship him, saying, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth and all the glory that should be yours without the cross. And Jesus refuses that temptation as well. He passes the test in the will of Jesus. As he prays to the Father on the eve of his betrayal, let this cup pass. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And Jesus passes the test with flying colors on every occasion, showing himself to be the true Son of God, the sinless Savior, the one who's able to offer himself as a sacrifice for sinners like me and you. You see this very scenario playing out in the life of Jesus. What the Father was using to prepare His Son to be the perfect, sinless Savior. Listen, Satan was aiming to prevent Him from becoming the perfect, sinless Savior. What the Father uses to test, our enemy uses to tempt. And that's why Jesus teaches us to pray. To lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, I'm in the midst of a trial right now. I just came out of one. I'm going into one. I'm in one currently. The reality is, that's where all of us are. And there's all tests that God might bring into our life. And trials, you know what they are? They are diverse and they are complex. There is a diversity to tests that God allows and brings, and there is a complexity to trials that we experience in this life. In fact, if you go back into that text I referred to earlier in James, in James chapter 1, when James says, Count it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. That word various there, it means literally variegated. You know what it means? Striped. There's Shapes to our trials, to our tests, right? There's a, there's, there's, there's a variety of trials we'll experience in life. It's kind of like a buffet, right? Nobody really wants to return to that buffet, though, okay? Because you go down the line, there's like a little bit of this and 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 it's piled on your plate because trials are various like that, but they're also complex, church, because they're oftentimes interwoven. There's a complexity to them. Think about this. It means there's an intricacy to our trials that makes it challenging to see how everything fits together. 
Those of you who have children who, are, have, who, who, who love Lego sets or have children who loved Lego sets. It's like having a thousand piece Lego set with no instructions, only a picture. Screaming at the top of his lungs because you can't build it correctly, right? I have no idea how all these pieces are supposed to fit together. Right? There's, a, there's a complexity to them. Right? And you see it oftentimes when a physical illness or a physical trial leads to emotional hardship for you. Because they're all interwoven. And sometimes you don't even know where to begin to pull those things apart. Because they're various, they're diverse. They're complex. You might have trials associated with as part one of God's kingdom citizens in this world as a part of another kingdom that doesn't value the things that he teaches and the ways that he commands us to live. You might be led astray on some of those, uh, some of those ways. You might have trials associated with living in a fallen, broken, and sin-marred world. You might have relational challenges with people. I, I know I'm about to start preaching right now. Because people are people. And there can be trials associated with relationships. You have trials in ministries. You seek to engage in the work that God's called you, wired you to do. And it seems like there's barriers and obstacles constantly as the enemy seeks to attack and advance. You might have challenges in your work life. right? Those of you who work in marketplace or you work in the in public education or you work in office buildings or you work uh, in finance wherever it is that you work you might have challenges there relating to people and the work that God has actually given you to do there might be trials there it might be challenging circumstances it might be suffering and sickness you might even have trials because you've been successful and we don't know how to handle success and so it's testing us to see where our heart really is clinging to and what our heart is really holding to. Will I trust God with success and with wealth and with knowledge and with skill, with positions of power? Will I give God gr- gratitude for all of His grace in my life or will it corrupt me? And will I capitalize on success as a means of leveraging my life for my own mission instead of Jesus' mission? Right? You can have a trial of success. You have all kinds of variables, and in each of them, God, our Father, is aiming. Our adversary is aiming to tempt. And so, what does this mean for our prayer life? All right, where's, let's come back to the text. What does this mean for our prayer life? Here it is, church. And I, I hope we can get this this morning. I hope that it sinks in and that God begins to bear fruit with it is this, is that we need to learn to pray like sin is more harmful than suffering. We need to learn to pray like sin is more harmful than our suffering. When Jesus teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. He's teaching us that there is something more destructive in our lives than our trials, and that is the temptations that the enemy would bring through them. There is something more destructive in our lives than our and the difficult seasons that we're living through, and that is to sin and rebel and run away from God. It is more harmful Right, if you, that's exactly what Jesus is saying in the prayer. If you notice, in, in your English translation, the Lord's Prayer is probably typeset as, a, as, a, as poetry in your English translation. 
And one of the common features of poetry is this, is parallelism. You know what that means? That means there's two lines that are saying similar things, and the second line usually is giving clarity and meaning to the first. Parallelism is in poetry. And so when Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, God, we serve our faith. Come into trials that you know would sink us. And God, in the allow, don't allow us to be sunk. Because sin is more harmful in our lives than our situations. It's more harmful than our circumstances. It's more harmful than our suffering. For our hearts to rebel and run from you is more harmful to us than for us to deal with difficulty, hardship with people or in places. And listen, if we were to be honest this morning, that most of us, whenever we come into difficult seasons, our prayers tend to be, God, deliver me from the season, not from the season. I don't know about you, but that's typically where my prayer life tends to turn. God, deliver me from this situation, not from sin in this situation. Preserve my faith, no matter how long this test, you've ordained this test to last, God. Would you preserve me in the midst of it? Would you give me grace to be faithful through it? That we're crying out to God, petitioning God, asking Him for preservation, protecting us from the adversary, and protecting us at times even from ourselves. You with me? That's what He's teaching us to pray. And so as we close this morning, uh, in, in the midst of these trials, in the midst of these tests, I'm going to give you four ways to pray this prayer. Okay, four ways to pray this prayer of preservation. That God would keep us from the adversary and He would keep us from ourselves, from our own desires, being led astray and enticed. And the first way to pray this prayer is this, is to pray it daily. To pray it daily. See, I don't know about you, but I know for me, and I suspect for you as well, that each of us needs our faith to be preserved all day Every day, 24-7, 365, because we are powerless to do it ourselves. This is not a prayer that Jesus teaches us to pray whenever we come into moments of crisis. Maybe moments of crisis in which there's prayer is more frequent and more urgent in your life, right? That can be a true reality, that there is more frequency. You're not just you're praying it hourly. You're praying it every minute sometimes in the midst of a crisis. But even outside of crises in our lives, Jesus is teaching us to pray this daily, continually, coming to God, asking Him to preserve us in the midst of all kinds of trials and tests that He might bring into our lives. That we're to pray it daily because we're powerless to do it ourselves. Listen, if, I, if you were to go to the doctor tomorrow and you were to walk into his office or her office, and they were on the table, they would do an exam, run some battery of some results in several weeks, and they would say, you have this disease. And this disease will have these in your life. However, through con the common grace of modern medicine and research, there is medication. It will not necessarily cure the disease, but it will keep you, allow you to live a full, healthy life. And you need to fill this prescription on a monthly basis and take this pill every single day. 
Otherwise, you will have it will this outcome. Otherwise, you will have these outcomes. What would you do? You would take the pill, wouldn't you? Right? You would take the pill. And when God comes to us and says, listen, your heart's affected with a disease. It's your own self-rule. It's sin. And even post-conversion, into sin, you still have an enemy and an adversary who is attacking you. Yet, if you will come before God and depend upon Him to preserve your faith day after day after day after day after day, you will find Him faithful to keep you from sin in the midst of even the hardest situations. You need to pray it daily. Second of all, we need to learn to pray it passionately. We need to learn to pray it passionately. Listen, there ought to be an urgency to this prayer. Right? An urgency to this prayer. We need not pray for, for preservation like, like this. And I'm not making fun of anybody in the room, I promise. But we need not pray like, God, mm, would you just, God, would you, would you just keep me and, and hold on to me? I, I, really, I really want you to um, mm, just, not to give me more than, mm, I, you know, just, I, I don't know, God, just more than I can handle. No, we, we come before God and we say, God, would you keep me? Would you preserve me, God? I need you. I'm desperate for you. Is there passion? Because you know the, that what's at stake. Do you pray with passion? Because listen, these smaller, like just like, professor in seminary who would not give one big exam in the end neither does God and And maybe even our moments of crisis we cry out with passion and urgency God keep me preserve me but listen every single day when we pray with the same kind of passion because we know listen those small ultimately reveal the condition and status of our heart they they they, and they they wire us Onto the bigger tests in other ways, perhaps in unhealthy ways. I was listening to a pastor this week who told a story about an interview that he had read with a man who was serving a life sentence in prison. And the reason the man was serving a life sentence in prison was because he was driving down a dark road one evening and a, a young boy ran out into the street. He did not see him and he ran over him. And when he the moment that he ran over him, fear and shock shot through his system. And the only thing that he could think to do was to hit the gas and speed away. And th- th- those who were familiar with the story said afterwards that if somebody would have been there, if somebody would have stopped, that perhaps, likely they said, this young boy would have been able to survive if he had gotten the medical attention that he needed in a timely fashion. Rather, he died in the dark. And so the, as the police investigated and they followed the trail of evidence, it led them to this man. The man went to his home and arrested him. Evidence was overwhelming and convicted him, right? And he was serving a life sentence. And in the interview that he did with the reporters, they him. He shared a really, what I thought was an insightful reality. Because he talked about what shaped him for that moment, where all these smaller moments had up to that moment. 
right? Earlier in his life, he talked about an occasion in which he was a child and he knew his priceless family heirloom was a watch that he kept in the top drawer of his dresser wrapped up in a handkerchief. And the father rarely took it out, rarely used it, but the boy knew exactly where it was. And one day he went into his room and he took out the watch. And as he was looking at the watch or playing with the watch, he dropped it and the watch broke. And so what did he do? He took, wrapped it back up in the handkerchief and put it back in the dresser drawer. When his father discovered the watch had been broken, he assembled his children. He showed them the broken watch. Who did this? And like children do, they were all silent. Right? It wasn't me. It wasn't me. Like, was it you? Was it you? Right? Everybody's looking at each other. And the young boy refused to fess up. He refused to acknowledge what he had done. And he never got in trouble for it. No one ever discovered it had been him. And as he gave the interview with that reporter, he said, that moment, that test of would I be in that moment and acknowledge what I had done, it shaped me for the way I respond later in my life. Every time I, I, I had to face the music, I had to fess up to what I had done, I just remained silent. I just withdrew to avoid the consequences. And so when he faced that moment of perhaps the greatest test, he failed. Didn't stop. He didn't render aid. And so we pray it daily, but we also pray it passionately daily even outside of moments of crisis, moments shape, or for, shape us for larger ones. Third, you also pray it personally. You pray it personally. We don't merely pray this prayer in general about some generic temptations that we might have, but we pray it about the specific areas in which we find ourselves to be tempted in our lives. Some of us, can I get a witness? Some of us have, just keeps repeating, Spotify list of trials that just keeps cycling through. It gets to the end and it comes to the beginning. And sometimes it's because we're not growing through those things and God just in various trials and all kinds of tests that there, our hearts are still resting in And so God keeps this list of trials on repeat in our life and we keep coming back to the same things over and over again. Because we might pray for God to preserve us generally. We don't want to pray for God. God, would you give me the grace to resist the temptation in the midst of this trial that I'm going through in life? Because I know that I'm prone to this. So that my heart has to run toward that. Right? For some of us, it's bitterness and anger. For some of us, it's lust and greed. For some of us, it might be unresolved Don't ever come back to and close the right. It, 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 it might be things that have been just eating away at our all of our lives. And we need to learn to pray this, not just in some general generic sense, but in a very personal way. What are the trials? What are the temptations? Where do you know your heart is prone to wander and leave the God that you love? Where do you know that you're prone to be tempted? Some of you can see cycles and repetitive cycles of that in your life. Wherever you see repetitive cycles of that in your life, you need to passionately preserve your faith in the midst of the tests. And then fourth, fourth and finally, we need to pray it 
corporately. Pray it corporately. Look at, look at the language. I, I find this interesting. We could have said this in every message in this series. When Jesus teaches to pray, he doesn't say, deliver me. Give me. He says, give us. Assumption is this, is that what God is wanting to see in the lives of his people did. And that we would pray together these things. That we would pray these things for and each other. Them for our family and friends in the faith that we know are prone to temptation in these areas because they've had the vulnerability and authenticity to share where it is that they have fallen on their face in the struggling with temptation in the present, where they know tempted in the future and they would share those things in the context of a safe network of people who can pray for them deliver us but also pray with them see if we're not praying these things together then we're not praying them as we should let me ask you this question when was the last time in a life group setting in your life groups or in close circles of friends you have whenever you a situation that you ask for prayer for the situation but not for your heart condition in the middle of the situation because you knew that that situation would be prone to this condition that would lead you to sin. Do, I, do, do we think that far down the line? Or do we just say, for me, God would remove me from it or do you actually say, would you pray that God would preserve me through it? That he would be in the midst of it. So that I would not yield to temptation. To think that, that something else is going to provide me ultimate good rather than God. See, one of the graces God has given us in the faith is us. It is the church. And if we remove ourselves from that context where we're not praying for and with others, not only about or the temptation bring in their lives, then we're not praying this as Jesus would intend us to pray it. So we pray it daily. We pray it passionately. We pray it personally. And we pray it corporately. And listen, church. Here's what I want to invite you to do as we close. I want to invite you to pray it. To take God at His word. And to believe, as the old hymn says, Oh, worship the King. Listen to the refrain that it has. It says, Frail children of dust and feeble as frail. Is that you? I know it's me. Feeble and frail. In Thee do we trust, nor find Thee to fail. Thy mercies how tender, how firm to the end. Our Maker defender, redeemer, friend. He will keep you. And He's the only one strong enough to do so. So pray it. Let's do that right now. Father, we come this morning. that you would use to test us, to show us 
where we are in our walk with you, where we are in our relationship with you, God, in the midst of those trials that you would use to test, may we not succumb to the enemy's temptations. To believe that you are not good, to believe that you are not glory, to believe that you are not we need more than you. In our situations, may we not only pray for deliverance from those situations, but from sin in those situations. Because we believe that sin harmful than our suffering and father would you help us to pray day after day passion about the personal ways in which we are tempted and may we do it together as a church body the belief around us and find you to be a faithful defender even as jude says now to him who is able to keep you from falling for you. May that be the prayer and the cry of our heart today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.